Thanks, guys. Appreciate, appreciate you leading us in that. If you've got a Bible, you want to open it up to Luke chapter 22. We are going to pick up in verse 39, which is where, right where we left off last week, and we're going to work through uh, verse 46. So Luke 22, 39 to 46. While you get yourselves sort of situated there, um, at the end of our service, we're, we'll take just a moment um, to uh, spend, spend some time together talking about the Supreme Court decision that was um, released on Friday that felt like something important for us to be able to just talk about and address within our services this morning. But I want us to do what we normally do when we're gathered first, which is to join together in worship, to join together in prayer, to join together around God's word. Um, those, are, those are the key functions of what we do on Sunday morning. So I want us to be able to do those. And then at the end, um, we'll take some time to talk about uh, I want to share some pastoral sort of thoughts and reflections on Friday's Supreme Court decision. So that's kind of where we're headed this morning. I'm going to read Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 46. We'll pray, and then we'll jump in. It says this. <clears throat> he went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he told them, "'Pray that you may not fall into temptation.'" Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and began to pray. Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he got up from prayer and came to the disciples, he found them sleeping, exhausted from their grief. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and the opportunity for us as a church to gather together and to open it, to spend time seeing you revealed to us in your word, seeing the beauty of Jesus revealed to us in your word, the hope, the wonder of the gospel revealed to us in your word. God, I pray that your spirit would take its truth, write it upon our hearts, Lord, open our, our minds and ears and hearts to receive its truth. God, would your spirit take your word, mold us into the image of your son and help us to walk faithfully, boldly and courageously in obedience to it, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Do you remember shopping malls? I think shopping malls were struggling as like an entity and then COVID was like, we're done with shopping malls. So I don't know when the last time you went into one was, particularly the last time you went into one that you weren't familiar with and you got inside and you had a couple of maybe particular stores that you were looking for. You just needed to orient yourself as to where you were and you needed to find one of the signs uh, with like the map on there and a little star that says, you are here. Because the map is only as helpful as you are able to locate yourself on it. That was a key skill when you were navigating malls, which we don't do any longer. We also don't use atlases, so I was really struggling to find an analogy to open this thing up with. 
But the map is only as helpful as you being able to orient yourself within it. Luke gives about 25% of his gospel to the last week of Jesus's life. Now, if you, if you go big picture in the gospel of Luke, three chapters are given to uh, covering some key moments in the first 30 years of Jesus's life. Then there's like 15 and a half chapters given entirely to what would be the three years of Jesus's public ministry. And things in that middle chunk move very quickly. Then all of a sudden, for six chapters, you get to the end of Jesus's life. And the events in Jerusalem that surround his arrest, trial, conviction, death, resurrection, and post-resurrection appearances slow way down. You get to the end of Luke's life, or of Jesus's life, Luke's gospel, and as you're reading through the events that take place, it can be a little difficult to uh, locate yourself. Where are you in the middle of that last week? And so, is that my fault? Okay. So Gary, or not, that's Gary I was talking to. Corey put together this chart for us, which takes the key events in Jesus's last week, what we would call Holy Week, and just lets you sort of see them in order. We're going to use this over the next few weeks. Where are we in this passage? We're on Thursday night. Jesus is going to be crucified on Friday. His life has maybe 18 hours or so left. And in that 18-hour time, he will undergo six trials in multiple locations in front of various groups of religious and civic leaders. But first, he has to be arrested. And before he's arrested, he goes into a garden to pray. That comes right on the heels of the Last Supper. So as we read these words... The end of Jesus' life is racing toward him. What I want to do this morning is just sort of like set the scene here because it's easy to read a familiar passage of scripture and sort of miss the moment a little bit. So I want to set the scene. I want us to spend a bit of time talking about the nature of the son, Jesus. Then we'll look at the father's answer to Jesus' prayer and reflect a little bit on the nature of prayer in the life of God's people. Here's our landing point this morning. The unthinkable grace of the gospel comes on the heels of Jesus's seemingly unanswered prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. The experience for Jesus from this point until his death on the cross is going to be one of increasing loneliness. For the last week of Jesus' life, the Mount of Olives serves as a sort of home base. Jesus and his disciples have been going to the temple every day to teach during this week-long festival there in Jerusalem. And at night, they would retreat to the Mount of Olives. It's important to remember that Jerusalem is packed at this time. It's swollen to maybe six times its normal population due to the celebration of the yearly Passover festival. And so finding a place for 13 people to be able to sleep would have been a challenge. What was Jesus and the disciples' solution? They would go to the Mount of Olives. And so just take a moment to sort of imagine the scene. You're with 12 of your closest friends. You're spending incredibly meaningful and powerful time together every day going into the Lord's house, which would have been this unbelievable location for you as a Jewish individual. There's the presence of the Lord. You're going to that place every day You're watching Jesus engage in this incredibly powerful ministry. And then at night, 
you're walking outside the city to the Mount of Olives. It's there that you spend the day in each other's company, recapping what took place, enjoying one another's presence. You're probably sharing meals of some sort together. The general laughter that takes place when a large group of friends is together would have been an absolute part of what's happening out there. And so the Mount of Olives has become this special place for this group. But it's about to change dramatically from Jesus. It's going to change from a place of community to a place of deep loneliness, which is just the beginning of what is a slow trek toward total isolation that will culminate with Jesus on the cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus prays here and it goes seemingly unanswered by the Father. He's deserted by the disciples as he prays. They fall asleep while Jesus is alone in the garden, a stone's throw away praying. He's then betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter. The disciples are going to scatter after his death. He's accused by the religious leaders, abandoned to mob injustice by the civil leaders of his day. He gets passed over by the crowd in favor of an actual criminal. He's jeered by a man on a cross next to him and then everything culminates in separation from the father. An experience that the son has never and will never have again. A trek toward increasing loneliness starts in the garden. If you take all of the gospel accounts and you piece them together, it helps us understand exactly what takes place during this time of prayer. We're told in the gospel of Luke that this takes place on the Mount of Olives. Matthew and Mark give us a more specific location on that mount. It takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're also told here in the Gospel of Luke that the disciples are invited to pray with him. In Matthew and Mark, we find out that eight disciples are left at the gate of the garden. Three are invited to go with Jesus into the garden. That's 11. And Judas has already left. It's in the middle of that, with Peter, James, and John invited into the garden, that in Matthew, we're told that Jesus is sorrowful and troubled. And he then goes on to tell James, John, and Peter that he is grieved to the point of death. In that moment, he asks the three of them to stay awake and pray with him. Then he goes away, Luke says, about a stone's throw. He kneels down and he begins to pray. Three times during that uh, time of prayer, Jesus catches the disciples asleep. Luke condenses all of that into one moment. But in Matthew and Mark, we're told that Jesus begins to pray, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then he goes back and he sees the disciples sleeping, encourages them to wake up and pray that they wouldn't fall into temptation. Then Jesus returns to prayer and says, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. Luke takes all of that and condenses it into one moment. Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Luke is the only gospel writer who includes the fact that an angel comes and strengthens Jesus while he's praying. And Luke is also the only gospel writer who includes the reason that Peter, James, and John fell asleep. We're told that they were exhausted from their grief. The emotional reality of the moment for Jesus here is one that is completely overwhelming. 
In fact, the whole experience is so overwhelming for, G- for Jesus that the gospel writers do their level best to let us into the intensity of the moment. He is sorrowful and troubled, that's Matthew. He's anguished, that's Luke. He's grieved to the point of death. His sweat becomes like drops of blood, which could be actually sweating blood or it could be an allusion to the way that the sweat was pouring over his body. An angel is sent to strengthen him. Jesus' human nature is at an absolute breaking point. Now, there are a few moments throughout the gospel accounts where we get a picture of the human nature of Jesus in such striking clarity that it almost jolts us back to the reality of who he is. Jesus is born. He makes an entrance into the world just like the rest of us did. He gets tired and he needs to sit down in John chapter four. He's weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. He's asleep in a boat in the middle of a storm. And when he's awoken by the disciples, he's a little miffed that they've disturbed his rest. He gets angry about people buying and selling in the temple courts. In Matthew 21, he's hungry. As he's hanging on the cross, we're told that he's thirsty. If we're not careful, we can get lulled into thinking of Jesus only in terms of his divine nature, as if his human nature is nothing more than like a facade that hangs over the top of his divinity. Jesus is absolutely divine. He controls nature. He controls the supernatural. He has a showdown with Satan and he comes out unscathed. He reverses the course of diseases, changes the chemical makeup of water into wine. He takes a concrete amount of bread and fish and multiplies it exponentially. And yet he is entirely human. And if you lose one side of that nature, you lose the whole thing. The historical doctrine of Jesus's nature is that he is the eternal son of God who assumed a complete human nature with all of its limitations without surrendering his divinity. The shorthand way of communicating that is to say, without ceasing to be what he was, which is divine, he became what he was not, which is human. The only way that Jesus can serve as humanity's substitute and representative in his death is that he was fully human and fully divine in his life. Why does that matter right now? Well, because while Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, it would appear that his two natures are at war with one another. Let me explain what I mean by that. What does our humanity do when it's faced with the prospect of intense pain? It recoils. It resists. It seeks to protect and preserve itself. It's human nature to avoid pain, whether it be physical or emotional, wherever that's possible. It's human nature to insulate oneself from that which is either dangerous to our life or painful to our being. And yet, what does the divine nature of Jesus know in this moment? Jesus in his eternal divine nature knows exactly what the righteousness of God demands in response to the sinfulness of humanity. Jesus in his eternal divine nature knows perfectly what the justice of God demands in response to the waywardness of humanity. Jesus in his eternal divine nature knows what the full judgment and wrath of God's just response to sin looks like as it is poured out. And Jesus in his divine nature knows That's what awaits him. When we read the Old Testament, 
We see what that judgment towards sin looks like as it's poured out on those who are not God's people. And it is hard for us to read and difficult to wrap our minds around. There are portions of the Old Testament that are difficult to sort of reconcile with the love and the grace of Jesus. And yet, those are the outward visible images of the just response of God, the just response of God toward the sinful reality of humanity. Jesus knows in full, perfect, eternal measure what that judgment looks like and that he was sent to the earth to absorb it. He knows what he's about to face. And as his human nature recoils and resists that pain, his divine nature knows that he must go toward it. Often you'll hear people ask questions about why God seems angry and vengeful in the Old Testament, but kind and loving in the New Testament. I want to take just a moment to address that question. God is unthinkably kind and loving in the Old Testament. He calls a people who don't deserve to be called to be his people. He's long-suffering and patient with them despite their ongoing rebellion and sin. The story of the Old Testament is the story of humanity's sin, God's kindness to call a people to himself, that people's inability to live righteously according to God's commands, and God's faithfulness to his promise to love, bless, and save them for his glory. Yes, there are moments of judgment in the Old Testament. That judgment falls upon people who, in their sin and apart from God's grace, receive the just judgment that his holiness and righteousness demand. But the most intense picture of judgment in all of the Bible happens in the New Testament. It happens to Jesus. The story of the New Testament is the story of humanity's sin, God's kindness to call a people to himself, that people's inability to live righteously according to God's commands, and God's faithfulness to his promise to love, bless, and save them for his glory. That happens because God sends the full wrath of his judgment upon Jesus so that he might purchase for himself a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue to be his own. Yes, there are moments of judgment in the New Testament. That judgment falls upon Jesus on the cross and upon all those who are not saved by God's grace through faith in that saving work. The greatest moment of judgment in all of scripture falls upon Jesus on the cross. And why does that matter? Because Jesus knows the moment is at hand. And so he prays, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The cup that Jesus talks about there, that is a word, an image, a metaphor that is used throughout scripture for God's judgment. If you wanna go back and read these in the Old Testament, jot them down. You can read about the cup of God's judgment in Psalm 11, Isaiah 51, Ezekiel 23, and Jeremiah 25. All of those use the image of God's judgment and wrath being poured out from the Lord's cup. Andrea, they're all the way in the back corner. I've got a good view. (laughs) You're fine. Jesus knows that that cup is what is coming his way. And his human nature does what human nature does. 
It resists. It looks to preserve itself. And yet his divine nature knows that that is what must happen. And so it does what the divine nature always does, which is to move toward the accomplishment of its eternal perfect plans. In the middle of that battle, wrestling with that reality, the disciples fall asleep. In the middle of that battle, Jesus has to start reckoning with the reality that he's going to be in this thing all alone and that he's the only one that can accomplish this task. In the middle of that battle, he sweats blood, he's grieved to the point of death, he's sorrowful, troubled, anguished. Jesus goes to the cross willingly. He's been coming toward Jerusalem for that reason since the very earliest days of his ministry. Think about it for a second. Jesus chooses to go to the Mount of Olives where he knows that he will be arrested. He's praying in this spot because Judas knows that's where Jesus will be and Jesus knows that Judas knows that that's where he will be. And so his human nature cries out, Father, if you're willing, take this cup away from me. And yet his divine nature is moving toward it the entire time. Mark's gospel says that when Jesus finishes praying, he walks over to the disciples who are asleep for the third time And he says, the time has come. See, the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. And then Jesus, with the disciples, goes right to the spot where he will be arrested. Hebrews tells us that he does so for the joy that was set before him. That joy is the fulfillment of the devil to save a people for the glory of God. But Jesus' humanity knows what it is about to cost and what it is about to feel like, and he is understandably timid. Scottish pastor Donald MacLeod says this, The wonder of the love of Jesus for his people is not that for their sake he faced death without fear, but that for their sake he he faced it terrified. Terrified by what he knew and terrified by what he did not know, he took damnation willingly and lovingly. And before that happens, we find him praying. And in a sense, Jesus does not get what he prays for. The cup is not taken away from him. And yet, in another sense, he gets exactly what he prays for. The Father's will to be done. Despite his moment of human trepidation, the Father's will is Jesus' greatest concern, We know that from his own mouth. In John 4, Jesus likens doing the will of the Father and completing his work to being his very food, the thing that sustains his life. We can learn a lot about prayer from this passage. Not only from Jesus and what we see in his prayer, but also from his encouragement to the disciples. He tells them to pray that they might not fall into temptation. And it's worth noting that while Jesus is telling them that, He's winning that battle in the garden. Now, when Jesus says, pray that you might not fall into temptation, he goes a a stone's throw away and he prays that he would not give in to the temptation of his human nature to avoid the cup of the Lord's wrath. And he wins that battle in prayer while he's encouraging the disciples to do likewise. I wanna offer just a few thoughts about prayer in our lives as we see it in this passage. The first is this. Prayer is a tool in the fight against sin and temptation. 
See that in the direction that Jesus gives to the disciples. What temptation are they praying against exactly, Jesus and the disciples? Well, they're both praying against the temptation to give in to their flesh. Even after the moment in the garden is over, Jesus tells the disciples to get up and keep on praying against that. We would be wise in moments of temptation to make our first move a move toward prayer. In the first year of our marriage, Melody and I, we had been married for like five months. I went on a 17-day mission trip to Southeast Asia. And I remember packing and then getting on the plane and thinking to myself, isn't there something like in the Old Testament about Israelite men who have been married for less than a year not leaving their wives and going off to battle? Like, am I doing something that's inherently unbiblical by going away for such a long time from this woman that I just married? I like wrestled with that. I say that for this reason. Sometimes when we're praying that we would not give in to the temptations of our flesh, it's not always that we wouldn't give in to outright sin. There's nothing sinful in me not wanting to leave my wife, but it is my flesh telling me that I don't want to leave for 17 days. Sometimes praying that we would not give in to temptation is just praying that we would not allow ourselves to immediately succumb to all the desires or the limitations of being human in a broken world. We would be wise in those moments to make our first move a move toward prayer. We would be wise in moments of temptation toward outright sin to make our first move a move toward prayer. Second, Prayer is always answered, though not always according to our desire. Sometimes the most loving thing God does is tell us no and then give us something better. We know this intuitively and inherently as parents. If it were up to your young children, they would eat Oreos for breakfast, cupcakes for lunch, and ice cream for dinner. And you as a parent, you say no, eat some green beans. Please, amen, yeah, green beans. We don't let them do that. We say no and then we give them something better. What we know intuitively as parents is often difficult to receive from the Lord. Think back over the course of your life. If you had gotten everything you wanted and everything you prayed for at every stage of your life, where would you be now? If you're married, would you have the spouse that you have? If you have children, would you have the kids that you have? Would you be here now? In this place? Even when there are good things that we're praying for that we don't receive, changing what God has done in our lives would only ever change them for the negative. Thabiti on Yabwile says it this way If God withholds something from us, the withholding is better than our receiving. Prayer is always answered, though not always according to our desire. See that in Jesus' prayer. Take this cup away from me. That prayer goes seemingly unanswered. And because it does, the doors are flung open for the grace of the gospel to come bursting into the world that lost people might be saved. Number three, prayer moves our hearts in the direction of submission. It's not wrong to bring our requests to God. In fact, Scripture tells us to do just that. But the primary aim of prayer in Scripture is less about making our desires known to God and more about Him making His will 
known to us. There is a relational connection developed throughout a life of prayer that makes trusting the Father's will easier over time. Just like relationship builds in human relationships over time, so too relationship builds through prayer over time. That's what happens in the place of prayer. We come to trust that when we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit will fill in the words for us. We come to trust that when we don't feel worthy to pray, the Son will intercede on our behalf, bringing our prayers to the Father. We come to trust that the Father hears, listens, responds, sometimes in line with our will, but always in line with His. And the trust formed in that process is one that moves us toward willing, joyful, although sometimes difficult, maybe even painful, submission. Prayer moves our hearts in the direction of submission. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Number four, seemingly unanswered prayer does not mean that God has abandoned us. The Father does not grant Jesus' request for the cup to pass from him, but he does not abandon Jesus either. He sends an angel to strengthen him. In doing so, Jesus is both strengthened to walk in submission to the Father's will. He's also reminded that though isolation is what stands before him, he does not ultimately drink that cup alone. In other places in scripture, God doesn't grant Paul's request to remove the thorn from his flesh. Instead, Paul is reminded and thus reminds us that God's grace is sufficient. That God's power is made perfect in weakness. Ray Ortland says it this way. There is nothing small about Jesus. He has fullness of grace upon grace for our need upon need. Our risen Lord above at this very moment is not tired and he is not tired of you. You can dig deeper into his grace, deeper than you've ever dug before and you will never touch the bottom. You will never ask too much of him. You will never ask too often. He will never respond with an eye roll and say, really, you again? What's your problem? No, that's what we are like. Let us never project onto him our own pettiness. He has fullness of grace for you moment by moment. Go to him, go back to him, never stop going to him. He is always happy to welcome you and to help you. Even when your prayer goes seemingly unanswered, God has not abandoned you. In fact, when our prayers go seemingly unanswered, the great invitation is to go back in prayer. And last, seemingly unanswered prayer does not mean that the outcome is bad. The doors to the gospel swing wide open because the Father does not grant the Son's desire in the garden. The greatest gift in all of humanity comes through a seemingly unanswered prayer. The Father strengthens the Son's heart. The Son goes to the cross willingly. The doors to salvation blow wide open. Now this is not to say that when God does not answer your prayer the way you would like him to, that he's going to bring salvation into the world through you. That was a special thing for Jesus. But we can be sure of this, that when our prayers go seemingly unanswered, God will bring his glory into the world somehow through what he does do in us. It could be that through the ripple effects of our seemingly unanswered prayers, that the beauty of the gospel and the good news of salvation eventually works its way to someone that might not otherwise have taken place. Seemingly unanswered prayer does not mean that the outcome is bad. When those prayers go seemingly unanswered, we ought to remember 
that that does not mean that God has abandoned us, that he's moving our hearts in the direction of submission, that though our prayer isn't answered the way we want it to, it will be answered by the Father. And that when we're, temptation, when we're tempted to run toward our own desires rather than his, prayer is our primary tool in the fight against that sin and against that temptation. The unthinkable grace of the gospel comes on the heels of Jesus' seemingly unanswered prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Everything we learn about prayer from this passage we see modeled in the Son perfectly, which is a reminder that everything that God has commanded is fulfilled in the Son perfectly. And everything that God has foretold is fulfilled in the Son perfectly. Everything that God has promised is fulfilled in the Son perfectly. And thus, by his willing death on the cross, we might be saved. Amen? Amen. Stand up and sing together.